Hello, welcome to Shoot First, Talk Later, the photo shoot podcast with me, Robert Gershenson. My guest this week is Benjamin Butterworth. He is the head of London Young Labour. That's the, uh, the labour group for anyone under 27. He's also a freelance journalist. He's written for the Gay Times. He's written for The Independent. He's written for The Guardian. And now he's in a new role where he is involved with the EU referendum. If you want to see the portraits I've just shot of Ben, then you can go to www.sftl.photos. We've done the shooting, now let's do the talking. Hello, Benjamin. Hello, how are you? I'm very well. <laughs> it's so weird when people... I, I usually do that, like, ask the person how they are, but we've just spent the last hour and a half shooting. It's true, but now we're talking. But now, now we're talking. Um, I'm very eager to know, in a, in, in, in a kind of world that we are at the moment that is very me-centric, how do you engage with people who are not politically minded? How do you actually get them involved and interested in politics? Uh, that's a very good question. I mean, my world is very me-centric, uh, so you had the right opening. Um, I think social media obviously is a big part of that. And there is, uh, they talk about a politicised generation. And I'm not convinced that this generation is dramatically more politicised than any other generation. Like you look at the 60s, 70s, 80s, there were, you know, all sorts of protests and rallies and things. So I think there's always a certain segment of young people who are political. But at the moment, I think social media is giving a voice to a lot of people who maybe wouldn't have felt they, like they had a voice beforehand. And I think platforms like Twitter Basically, everyone has those in, in Britain, has access to those things and the internet and computers and a phone. And so whether you're rich or poor, there is an outlet for you. You know, Rupert Murdoch's Twitter is just as much Twitter as someone on a council estate around the corner from here in, in South London. And I think that's quite refreshing and that's quite new. And I think that has engaged quite a few young people uh, in politics or even just in their ideas and the issues that they care about. And actually, the question of how you get people interested, it's about saying it's these issues rather than it's this politician, because this politician often isn't that interesting. But the issue of uh, gay rights, for example, or the issue of tax evasion, uh, those are things that people might have strong opinions on. But if you come across someone who, actually, I'll just use myself, I'm 33. <laughs> I'm not no. actually that i know can you imagine can i can't you, could you believe my face i thought you were 32 oh well, well thank uh, you <laughs> I, I swear i read that somewhere um i'm not that politically minded i don't i'm not a member of any political party i don't really feel um loyal to any individual political party and i don't really take that much interest in in what goes on i actually find some of the behavior i see quite off-putting how do you engage with someone like me who has a vote, one person, one vote, and, you know, when you come around and you're canvassing and you, you obviously want people to vote for Labour, how do you actually engage with me and, and convince me that my vote should go to Labour? So, I mean, the, the first thing on the broader question of people who... Uh, maybe don't vote or people who don't take an interest. I do actually think, and this isn't the fashionable thing to say, but I do think there's a fundamental uh, expectation that people should make an effort uh, when it comes to using their vote, a very basic effort to engage with the process, whether that's watching the news once in a while or it being available to learn about at school. I think there should be an expectation on individuals to take a very basic effort because you get people, plenty of people who don't know who the different political parties are, who, who don't know who 
a couple of people from the government, for example. Oh, I know that. I, I know um, that much. <laughs> and I, I'm sure you do, but you do get people that like that, and they're the very people who often say, "Oh, they're all the same," or "They don't represent me." And they might be all well. They're not all the same, but they might not represent them. But you do have to make, in my opinion, it's not fashionable. There is a certain level of interest that you have to take if, as a responsible citizen because your vote is valuable. And at the end of the day, we all have to think about these issues and, and pitch in our ideas. Otherwise, it's not a proper democracy. On your question of how to make you how to make you vote Labour, how to get you to vote Labour, uh, but it's it's I mean it's not a, it's not a case of making me. It's a case of engaging with me and, and 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 kind of enticing me into a conversation to a point that I would say I've I've made up my mind. I'm going to vote Labour. Yeah, or or, or not vote Conservative, vote whoever. It's about talking about the issues that actually matter so often like in politics you get people that talk in language that just doesn't mean anything even if what they're saying is your tax credits will be changed if you're a family or uh, your council tax will be changed or the uh, income thresholds at which you pay tax those things that everyone is affected by even if it's something like that often it's phrased in such an alienating way and if one person has a good idea so often the other guy and it is always a guy seemingly uh, says it's a bad idea even if it's a good idea, just to, to have the opposition view. And I think that version of politics isn't helpful. Uh, and you get good examples, like you get countries like Sweden or, or Scotland, for example, where they don't have an argument that's quite like that and it's a lot friendlier and more reasonable. And I think that would engage more people by it not just constantly being a slinging match. Because in any other workplace, can you imagine like... If you have two teams in a sales company and they literally just say the other one is wrong all the time for the sake of it, that workplace would be a nightmare. And yet that's what how Parliament functions. Why? Why is it? That was one of my questions I was going to come, come on to. Um, a couple of days ago, I was watching that clip of uh, Jeremy Corbyn trying, trying to get his words out, but he's been heckled so much to the point that the, the, the Speaker of the House had to actually remind yeah. the, the Commons that he has a right to be heard. Why do they act in this way? This is what I mean when I earlier when I said about behaviour. They act in this. It, it's a really juvenile way. And these these people are are, are in charge of. Um, they are in charge of affecting the lives of every single person that live in this country, and yet they act in a way that it just seems that they don't really take it that seriously. I mean, yeah, it's like a private members club pmqs uh it may as well be private members questions frankly the way some of them behave mm. and you get this thing and it's it is mainly tory mps but you get this thing Just where in <laughs> they have gone to boarding school and that school will have beautiful high ceilings and arches and be grand and then they go to oxford or cambridge and it's beautiful buildings and it's grand and nice lawns and then maybe they go and work as a lawyer in the chambers and it's the same setting and then they become an mp and it's the same setting and these people have gone through their whole lives they've only ever seen the same architecture worked in the same sort of places with the same sort of people and they've got this attitude that it's okay to be bolshy and arrogant and rude because actually they've got a long way by doing that because there's this culture among a section of society a small wealthy elitist section of society where that is how they progress and then that gets into parliament and it's not okay and you actually do need somebody to stand up and say it's not a private members club in parliament actually each and every one of them represents about seventy thousand people but seemingly the people who do end up in charge come from that culture how how can we get out of that cycle I mean, the thing I would say is that there are there are 650 MPs, right? So actually, it's easy to lose track of how many of them 
are more normal. Uh, so most MPs you've never heard of, mm-hmm. uh, like 95% of them, if not more, you've never heard of. They're normal people. There are, believe it or not, there are women in Parliament. Oh, uh, I know it's a very modern concept. <laughs> uh, you know, there are lots of MPs, particularly on the Labour benches, who come from normal backgrounds, uh, are normal people, and they're there for the right reasons. And they work hard. But often they don't make the headlines because of that, because they work hard in their constituency or they have a particular issue that brought them into politics. For example, there was Jess Phillips. She's a Birmingham MP, a Labour MP for Birmingham. And she, uh, there was the Women's uh, International Women's Day debate on Tuesday. And she read out the 120 names of women murdered by men in the last year. Now, she went into Parliament because she worked in a women's refuge and women's charities before politics. She wanted to actually do something, so she wanted to be able to make the laws. She's gone into Parliament to play a bigger role in that, hopefully. And that is the story of a lot of MPs, is that they're in there for a specific reason, but they're not as interesting to talk about. Uh, and yeah, you're talking about in, in terms of who the media pick up on. Exactly. So you get you get the the person that cons the taxpayer out on expenses and stuff or sleeps around and all the rest of it and they're obviously wrong to do those things and that's why it makes a a great story it makes the front pages and everyone tweets about it and they're right to point out how wrong those things are and those people shouldn't be in parliament but actually the frustration is that there are several hundred other people uh working hard each day and mps work long hours in reality i'm I'm sure they do um i I was more getting at the fact that the people who who seem to be the ones in charge. I'm talking about the Prime Minister, Deputy Prime Minister, uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. They all seem to come from that culture you they come from the before. same. They come from the same school. So, yeah, so why, and, and Boris, why is it that the people in charge always seem to be those people? Why are the, the, the you know, the, the normal, quote-unquote, MPs who you just highlighted, why are they never the party leaders? Why are they never right well, hang at on. the top of the front? So, I mean, that's because... <clears throat> The public perception of what makes a leader is obviously built over time. There's an image of a leader that people have in their head, whether it's subconscious or not. And the the fact is, and it's so frustrating, the fact is that is often a, a slightly bullyish, uh, posh, middle class or upper middle class white man. Okay. And that is the default th- position that people think of when they think of a leader. And you think they're doing this subconsciously? And so, well, the reason that exists is because that's what's happened over hundreds of years. They have been the only people in charge, so they have moulded what it looks like to be a leader. And it includes, you see it with Donald Trump, you know, a rich, bully boy, uh, white man. Uh, And this is what you get in so many countries, including this one, because that is what the image of a leader has been moulded like. Now, obviously, there are different people. The Tory party, basically, they're all the same. Uh, Certainly in the leadership, they went to the same school, for goodness sake. When David Cameron got elected Tory leader in 2005, he had more people in his shadow cabinet that had gone from Eton than any previous uh, shadow cabinet or cabinet. And that was in 2005, not 1945. Uh, But let's not forget John Prescott, a guy who who worked on the shipyards and then went to a union, uh, was Deputy Prime Minister for 10 years. And there's nothing posh about him. (laughs) He's the one that decked the guy, right? He's what, sorry? He's the guy who who punched the the Uh, egg thrower. uh, Yeah, he is. Uh, And he also was famous for for cheating on his wife and having two Jaguars. Uh, oh yeah yeah yeah. two jabs two jags yes yeah <laughs> yeah the media does love a, a bit of a rhyming thing going on um we also live in a very disposable culture so something will happen online and boom within half an hour within an hour it's peaked and it's gone that kind of culture in that kind of culture how do you kind of sustain 
a, a policy or a campaign. Well, you've got this consumer politics, haven't you? And there's nowhere that's more apparent than on social media, where everyone hashtags something and they think they're shaping history. And the fact is that, you know, maybe you can influence the way people think when you do things like that online. But often it's tougher to do that and you actually have to do much harder things to change the way the world is than putting a hashtag on something. And Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, uh, well, not his leadership, but his election has shown that in a degree because you were able to join up for three quid. You could get a vote in the Labour leadership to decide who the leader was last summer. Three quid? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. As a registered supporter. Okay. So you got a vote uh, and hundreds of thousands of people did this. Most of them voted for Jeremy Corbyn uh, and they would tweet about it and Facebook about it and comment on everything. And almost all of those people haven't been involved in the Labour Party since. It was a fad. It was exciting. They got their three quid vote. And most of them haven't gone and knocked on doors or spoken to people or run campaigns or done the boring stuff like organising a, you know, a store in their local town. All the things that politics involves if you're trying to convince real people. They ha- most of them haven't done that. And that includes actually people that voted for other candidates in that election they haven't gone and done those things but they're able to just join up tweet about it take the social media recognition or enjoy the arguments online and then move on and i think you've got this consumer politics that you can just that it's basically exchangeable you can give your money you can pay for something you can vote and then leave it and do the hashtag and that doesn't count how do they combat that how do they get people to stay once you're in the door you've paid your three quid how do you get people to stay I mean, people vote on whether they trust you. This is boring stuff, but they vote on whether they trust you on the economy, whether you think you're going to keep the streets clean and the streets safe. That's basically how people vote at every election. And there is no exception to that rule in modern British political history. So whether you've got Twitter or whether Twitter's never existed, the fact is that the really boring, basic, substantial stuff that affects someone's you know, basic standard of lives, can they pay their mortgage, for example, that's what they vote on. And this sort of Twitter stuff often it energises people that already think that way. They're just echo chambers. So it doesn't matter if David Cameron is trending or Jeremy Corbyn is trending. Often it's the people that already think that way just talking about it louder. There's very little examples of people changing their mind because of of tweets or Facebook statuses. Jeremy Corbyn, he doesn't strike me as the Eton type. No, although he is quite posh. Is he? So, like... he. The way I look at him, he just looks like, like a... I wouldn't say cuddly, but a kind of old uncle somewhere in your family. He yeah. doesn't come across as he doesn't come across as the same type as David Cameron. I mean, he's not in my family because my family is from Manchester, so I, uh, my uncles are a lot more aggressive and, and gruff <laughs> than he is. Uh, but I mean, Jeremy Corbyn grew up uh, in a nice house and went to private school, and then uh, worked for a trade union and became an MP. Uh, so I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but. He's not from a different background, really, compared to the others. He's come to very different conclusions and he's, you know, on the left and he's a progressive. Uh, But, you know, it'd be wrong not to point out that he's of a similar background. And it just shows how full the place is of people from that wealthy middle class background when, you know, the, the proper left and the right are all from the same private schools. Where does the difference in their approach come from then? If you look at David Cameron, his approach is very, it's very smarmy. He's very slimy in his in, in the way he comes across and quite arrogant. And yet Corbyn isn't. So where does Corbyn's kind of where does his approach? I mean, come from 
because it, it, it clearly does differ from David Cameron. I think they have very different worldviews. At PMQs the other week, uh, they were talking about their mothers, which really was depressing when... I saw that clip, yeah, yeah. When, you know, your mum jokes is parliamentary <laughs> questions. Uh, and then one was saying, uh, David Cameron said you should do it your tie and put on a proper suit. Uh, and I think that's just the different worldview that they have. I think Jeremy Corbyn's more laid back about things like image and David Cameron. I mean, here's a guy that did PR for Carlton as his only job before he went into politics. So I think he cares about his image a lot more. And you're, you voted for Corbyn. Uh, I voted for a different candidate in the Labour leadership. Um, I voted for someone called Liz Kendall, uh, who, because I thought it was, be great to have a woman leading the Labour Party. There's such a lack of representation of women in public life. And I thought she was a competent, strong woman. Uh, and she would have done a great job. Uh, but Jeremy Corbyn won. And uh, he's a talented man and he's got good progressive ideas. If he got into power, if he became prime minister, how would his ideas, A, be passed into law and B, actually have a positive effect on the country? I mean, his ideas would be passed into law by people who vote for them in Parliament. Uh, like any other law. Uh, oh, no, I don't mean, I don't mean in, in that <laughs> respect. I understand that. But um, are his, I guess a good way of putting it is, are his ideas viable? Are they likely to be passed into law? Or is it a case of getting people to go along on the fad so he gets in, but then once he's in, he's going to find he's not going to be able to get them passed? Well, I think Jeremy Corbyn has set out the way he sees Britain and that's that he thinks at the moment it's not fair enough, it's not equal enough and people work long hours and full-time jobs and still live in poverty and that's wrong and that's what he's saying and he set out a vision. The actual specifics of his policies and things being four years from the election, we don't know what they are. So I can't say if they're viable or not because uh, we don't know exactly what they are yet, which is which is normal. Uh, but I think he's got the right idea to point out that inequality is extreme and it gets more extreme with every year in this country in terms of in how much people learn in income inequality but also like cultural inequality like the fact that uh you know a middle class kid or an upper middle class child can go to the theater and can experience the arts and can have extra tuition at school those make them really rounded young people and when you go for university or job interviews having that cultural experience is such an asset especially when the person interviewing for you for those jobs is from a similar middle class background with similar cultural interests so you get these people that grow up without parents that you know can hardly afford to pay the rent and food so they can't take them to the theatre and have extra tuition and piano lessons and things and he's saying that everyone should have those opportunities because that inequality comes fundamentally so even if those people get other advantages they're still missing out on those basics that you know often middle class families take for granted that's quite a big thing to identify how would he even implement something like that it, you can't just put into law that kids have to have extra piano lessons so how do you actually go about is it is well, it a case of attack it from an emotional sense saying you know we're all in this together we're all human beings we all deserve the same thing or do you actually pump a lot of money into one side of things and say well we've got to get these kids x y and z well what you do is you don't cut the arts budget and the culture media and sport departments budget and you don't cut funding for schools so that they can provide extra tuition and you invest in those things so that our public services can provide things like this i mean uh 
Tessa Jowell, who was running for the Labour candidate of Mayor of London, and I, I don't know if Sadiq has, Sadiq Khan has kept this promise, but she had an idea whereby every hotel room would have a £1 tax on it per night, which is normal in a lot of other countries. So if you come here to London, let's say your hotel room is 80 quid, you would pay £81. £1 goes to the Mayor of London, and then all that money, which would be many, many millions of pounds, because London is the most visited city in the world. And that goes to spending it on kids from underprivileged background in London, of which there are so many, being able to have cultural experiences. So that is an example of how to do that. People who come here to visit our palaces and our museums and our theatres, as millions of people do, pay an extra quid a night so that kids who come from underprivileged backgrounds can have the same opportunities. And currently there's nothing like that. No, which I think is absurd because a lot of countries, and I went travelling to Italy last year, and lots of places in Italy do that. Lots of places in other countries have that £1 hotel tax. Some places it's £2. Uh, and I think it makes good sense. You know, if you can afford a hotel in London, which is expensive, and also a lot of hotels are paid for by businesses of people coming here for that sort of work. So a quid, afford the extra quid. A quid a night is, is just not a big deal. Well, it's nothing. But when you add all that up, that's a huge help to, to some young people in the city who actually live here and can benefit from it. Is democracy right for the UK at the moment, considering the kind of situation that the country is in? Uh, yes, democracy is right. <laughs> I think it was Winston Churchill who said it's the least worst form of government. Uh, and I suppose I agree with him. Uh, I mean, what would you do instead of democracy? What I'm saying is maybe move into socialism or, or something else. Something that doesn't necessarily mean that people either have an election every four years and we go in this cycle. Or it seems that there's always this this cycle they, they jump on a certain policy because they know it's going to get the vote. Is there a way of getting us out of that kind of cycle? Am I explaining that, am yeah, I explaining I that mean, well? If you want fascism, you, you've got Donald Trump on offer in America, so that is now an, an option. <laughs> uh, I think in a way what you're referring to is communism, which arguably failed quite badly. Mm. I think most Eastern European countries uh, wouldn't support that. Uh, but what you're highlighting is a failure of the system, not a failure of democracy. So it's the way we do things in that you don't think long term. If you've got to get re-elected in four or five years time, then you think about what looks good then rather than what looks good in 20 or 30 years time. And I suppose, you know, that's a really broad issue of how you get over that. To some degree, I think the media is is to fail because they love picking up on the tiniest things, the tiniest story to exploit and make someone look like an idiot or to get their point across, because who owns that newspaper wants to get that point across. And that's not healthy for democracy. The fact that you've got one guy that owns several newspapers and magazines, uh, and another guy that owns another several newspapers, uh, the fact that they control the media, and that they pump out the lines that they think to millions of people. And people aren't stupid, but if you only receive one argument then, of course, you're going to start to to see the validity of that. And even if that argument is the one that I happen to agree with, which usually it's not in the British media, but even if it is, it's still wrong that one side of the argument is given so much more publicity and value than others. Uh, but that is the fact of the way British media is. So switching topics, would you say that the 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 current kind of gay liberation movement within the UK has kind of lost its way and I'm referring to your article about um, London Pride banning the gay UKIP members from marching in the parade. 
when I wrote that article, I got a lot of response um, and it's it's nice to get people's feedback. I didn't anticipate that I'd still be getting feedback on it a year later on Twitter. People still <laughs> tweet. Still now. It. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it must come up really good on like Google search engines. Well, you, raised a, uh, a pr- you raised a couple of good points. Right. So my point was that... Well, the, the backstory was that London Pride decided that for the the... the the reason they gave was for the safety of everyone involved that the people who wanted to march under the UKIP banner were not allowed to. Yeah. Look, my view was and is that you have to support people who are arguing and fighting for LGBT rights. Now, while most of us, the overwhelming majority of gay people, for example, would never vote UKIP because their policies are homophobic and their leaders are homophobic. The fact is, there you have some people within UKIP who are arguing for them to not be homophobic and that their worldview doesn't need to have in it homophobia and bigotry towards the LGBT community. And they are right to stay, stand up and say that. And if we took the attitude that you should never support people who are arguing from within for gay rights in an organisation that is at the time bigoted, well, then we wouldn't have got where we are today because back in the 80s, the Conservative Party was deeply bigoted. It introduced Section 28 and so many other laws. And if we had supported people within the Conservative Party to argue for reforms and to argue for them to not be so homophobic, well, we'd have never got where we were today. I interviewed Serene McKellen about a year and a half, two years ago, and he met with John Major in Downing Street to talk to him about gay rights. And he knew John Major wasn't really on the same page, but he also knew that if he didn't convince people like John Major and people within the Conservative Party who was in government, well, then you'd never get anywhere. And that's why I thought that people arguing within UKIP for progressive policies on LGBT issues, you should stand with them, not against them. And before that was, they weren't, they still weren't allowed to, to march, were they? Uh, no, they weren't, although I believe that some of them just walked in the march anyway. Uh, and they were sort of you know, a blind eye was turned. Do you go to Pride? Yeah, I have. I've been to... My first Pride when I was 18 was Manchester Pride because that's where I grew up. And then I've been to London Pride three or four times. Uh, But I love Manchester Pride. Yeah, I went to Manchester last year. It's Um, always fun. Yeah, it's... I love the parade. I think the parade Uh is is so much fun. And it's become... It's become more than a march now. It is a parade. It's a carnival. It's not... I mean... But I think that's fantastic. Sorry? I think that's great. Oh no! I think yeah. I mean, it just shows that things have moved on. You don't need you don't need to be so aggressive anymore. It's it's not relevant. It's not appropriate. But the problem I have with pride events is the revelers. I'm going to sound like such a old man. There's a certain group. There's a certain section of of the attendees who only go for the party. And they get really fucked up on drink and they get really fucked up on, on drugs. And I just feel that's not the message of pride. That's not what it's there for. And I would much rather if they just stayed away. So I have a general frustration that you've got all these gay guys who are probably a bit younger than me. So I'm 23. Uh guys in their 20s and late teenagers who are coming into the the scene and they have no idea of what our history is you know we saw sam smith at the oscars saying that and you know he he probably should have 
fact-checked his Oscars acceptance speech or before he said it. Someone in his team must have. Exactly. Should have said. Well, they might have at one point said, if you win, what do you think you're going to yeah. say? Someone <laughs> didn't do their job right. So I, I feel like it was a broader failing. But the fact is, he went up and said, uh, oh, I think I might be the first LGBT person to win an Oscar that's out. So I'm proud of that. Look, in principle, that was a nice thing to say. So it was a bit harsh to attack him in the way some people did. But what it showed was that young gay men don't know their history and who has gone before them and who fought for the rights that they had. And the fact is that I get frustrated with the same people at Pride in the sense that they have sort of no recognition of what went before and why Pride exists and why it's political and why some people still want it to be a protest and have you know protest banners as part of the parade. And those things are important. On the other hand, isn't it nice to live in a society where you can be 20 and gay and out and not even think about the politics of it because it doesn't matter because people don't constantly confront you about it or take your rights away. So there are two sides to it. Uh, I think it's nice to live in that society, but it would be nicer if you knew how you got there. I often find that a lot of the the guys younger than me, and I know, like I've said, I'm 33. There are people younger than me, Benjamin. <laughs> you look great. Thank you. Um, they don't even identify as gay. They just happen to be a man who likes a man. They don't identify as the word gay. I mean, that is such a millennial thing. <laughs> like, now you sound like British and Ellis. Right. <laughs> don't label me. Um, well, yeah, but they don't. They don't agree with with the label. They don't. They don't identify with everything that they think goes with it. So they don't identify with liking Madonna music or or RuPaul's Drag Race or all this cultural stuff that is connected to gay. So they. They, they disconnect themselves from that term. Part of me finds it really cool that they that we're so we're so integrated and so ingrained in society now that even the word that we were fighting under has kind of disappeared. But it is worrying if they are dumping that word, they're also dumping the history. I mean, people can be what they like, but what I definitely hate is when people say they're straight acting because everyone looks gay with a dick in their mouth literally you took the words out you took the words out of my <laughs> uh i hate this idea that if you're not camp or if you're not turning up at a shirley bassey show each friday night that you're uh you're straight acting like you're you're not straight acting you act the way you feel comfortable just like someone that dresses up as a drag queen on the weekend acts the way they're comfortable you are gay or you are bi or however else you 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 identify uh, regardless of how you behave and when i see on uh i have this app called uh grinder uh oh, and what, what's that <laughs> it's like a, i'm not uh, familiar with grinder it's, it's a bit like google maps um <laughs> and when you when you go on there you get these people that say mask for mask and i'm like well i'm not overly masculine camp. masculine yeah i'm not uh i'm not overly camp i'm definitely not overly masculine either uh but this idea that they'd only go out with someone masculine I mean, what does that mean is that not in denial about your own sexuality or your own culture uh, it's nothing to be ashamed of uh i i'm not overly camp as i say but i would have no, have no problem with someone else behaving like that because they're free to do so and we've got into this almost post-gay era of where it's almost wrong to be camp because why are you drawing attention to it? And that's so wrong because people should behave how they feel. Do these apps and gay magazines kind of contribute to this this culture you just identified? In what way? Do they instill in these young lads 
a certain uh, certain behavior saying you have to kind of fit into these boxes these are our tribes which one are you and if you're not fitting into this then what the fuck is wrong with you i mean i don't think gay magazines do because no one reads them uh but <laughs> on the apps i think you you see a lot of torsos uh endless torsos and like i don't look like that endless white <laughs> torsos endless white torsos as well i hate when they say uh no asians for example and it's like well you know what i think all those asian gay men are self-respecting enough that they're not begging for you to want them uh get over yourself if you're saying things like that but it's just pure racism well, yeah it's also racism but it's, it's racism, racism and arrogance but masked with preference yeah you can have uh, a preference it's fine uh, but you don't have to shout yeah. about it racist isn't a sexual preference uh, that's what I say. But you get all these torsos on uh, Grinder, And I think maybe that builds up this... Headless torsos he- as well. Exactly. And it builds up this idea that that's what a gay man is meant to look like. And you know what? If you're 17 and getting an app like that, which I, is probably quite usual these days, uh, maybe even a bit younger because who's to stop them? Uh-huh. And that's the image of gay men that you see and you're exposed to when you think about it. And it probably does give you a warped perception of what it's like. Uh, I don't have a six pack. I'm never going to have a six pack because I can't be bothered. Are you okay uh, with that? And I'm fine with that. Are you? I, I mean, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I w- like. I would like one in the sense of uh, if I had it, I'd be proud of it, and I find it attractive sometimes. But like, I also like McDonald's, so. <laughs> and we should get over this idea that you have to look like that, and I definitely think Grinder reinforces that. So you grew up with a, a like a comfortable body image or where did it come from did you have to work hard to drop all that kind of you know perfect what? body bullshit I'll be I'll be honest I think I think I'm a bit arrogant in the sense of I've always I it's not I don't always think I'm right or anything but I'm just well, like, you're a journalist I'm just like this is the this is how I am this is the way I see things and this is the way I look and those facts of life about me and there are lots of things that you can worry about in the world but what my face looks like or how fat or not fat i am uh are probably not going to change and so it's just not worth worrying about and that's that's my ideology but you've always had that opinion so when i was at school i got bullied quite a lot i was much camper than i am now actually and it goes back to the other point but when i was at school so obviously like 10 years ago uh uh, 10 years ago till about six years ago was my schooling and the image of a gay man then was very much a camp one that was the only image that you saw and so I was a lot camper as a kid because I was overplaying the gay thing even though I was in the closet and then once I came out and moved to London and you know actually became a normal not normal but like uh when you became mask a functioning gay man <laughs> I'm not mask um but like I became less camp because I became more comfortable in myself okay. I was no longer that playing a stereotype and maybe the stereotype has changed into someone that's got this torso in his mask. Maybe it's just morphed into the, the polar opposite. Uh, but yeah, I was I was bullied as a kid, like most gay people were. And I was... People made jokes about the idea of fancying me. People would send me notes saying, uh, I want to date Ben. Uh, and that would be that would be the joke. That would be the class joke. But somehow it, somehow it never got to me in the sense of... I mean, I think being gay, I didn't think I wasn't particularly sexualized as a teenager because I didn't fancy any of the obvious people to fancy. So it wasn't that pertinent. But you knew you were gay? Yeah, yeah. yeah from about 11, maybe. Okay. Uh, I think it's probably normal, the start of puberty, yeah. when you, you recognize it. Uh, I was always quite comfortable in it. Sharing that with other people was, was obviously a bit of a challenge, but I never felt insecure about it. And I, I grew up with my grandparents who are lovely, but also homophobic. 
and I never I never put two and two together in the sense that I was I'm gay and they hate that and they do hate it now they know but I was fine with it because I was they like hate, they still hate it now yeah and is that a point of contention they hate it not really because it simply wouldn't come up so they they they're brilliant grandparents in other ways and love me dearly so they wouldn't put that in the way of that family relationship but that on its own they 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 just don't like it they are they are homophobic they're in their 80s uh they come from that generation so when did they when did you come out to them so it's actually (laughs) it's hilarious timing so it was just after i turned 18 about two months after and i had my first night out in canal street Uh which is also my first night out generally um and i had i was seeing a guy and i had gone on a night out there in canal street that was coming back uh the next day like pissed up in the morning uh like i was in the morning I, I wasn't still drunk or anything like no, no, no it's just like oh, the, oh the day after it, okay it, it was the next afternoon i don't know what i'd been doing um <laughs> and i was on the train back and my my dad who already knew i was gay uh he rings me because on facebook he said interested in men because it wasn't a secret uh at school or anything like that and my auntie in canada who has me on facebook had been stalking me on facebook and your dad's sister uh uh uh, no but it's it's my auntie okay she's she's my yeah it's it's not that complicated it's just not my dad's sister uh he's like my dad's niece or something i'm not sure anyway um so she had seen it on facebook and then rung my dad uh no then rung my grandma uh who was then like horrified uh and was they were furious in the way that you'd done something wrong like you know you'd broken the law or something like that but i was like i don't care like it's your issue not mine uh, and i was i was 18 uh but i thought that since i was 13 like you know if you're homophobic and i still think this it's very rare that someone says something but it has happened it has to most people what sort of things were they saying i mean why do you think they're homophobic i mean because there's no doubt that they are but what 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 were they saying how does it manifest itself uh, I mean, it wasn't really talked about at home after the initial sort of few days. Uh, but I mean, I might, you know, they've called me puff and stuff at home and, you know, stupid, queer and old things school. Like that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I'm like, you know what? That says so much more about you than it does me because I'm fine. Like I have other insecurities. Uh, don't pick on those. But being gay is not one of them because that's just a fact of life. Uh, I like men and I like cock. And that is the reality of who I am. So if you've got a problem with that, then that's a problem with you. And my God, if you're going around your day-to-day life worrying and getting angered about every person who's not straight, well, if you live in London, there's a damn lot of them. So you're <laughs> going to have a very... Manchester. A- exactly. You're going to have a you very angry life. You can't move a gaze in Manchester. Throw that- a rock and you'll hit four. And that's why I like it. <laughs> God. Because you work your way around it. Not quite. <laughs> I've been gone a few years. <laughs> um. So, yeah, your grandparents raised you. Yeah. Yeah. And your your dad is in the picture. Your yeah. dad is not in the picture. No, my dad's your in dad the picture. Your dad is in the picture. Yeah, okay. I just, they lived on neighbouring roads. Uh, okay. But my grandparents were, were, are well off and had a nice house. Uh, so I, I stayed with them most of the time. And you were reunited with your mum recently. So I wrote, I wrote about this for The Guardian uh, last summer, I think. Uh, but actually, it was a, w- a year last Christmas. So it was, I think it was like Boxing Day. And I'd not known my mum growing up because, uh, and it's not a secret, both my parents are heroin addicts and they were while I was growing up. And so I never met her, but I'd heard she'd been cleared of heroin for five years, uh, which is amazing. And so I was speaking to my sister on Facebook and my sister lives in Canada and she was coming back for Christmas to spend it with her mum and her auntie and all the family who were together in Scotland, in Glasgow. 
And so I spoke to her and agreed to get in a car and go to Glasgow and turn From up. From Manchester? Yeah, which is where so she was flying. So you, your sister lives in Canada. Did you know yeah. her growing up? Uh, yeah, well, she went to the same school, but she's like five years older. So I was aware of her and I was aware that she was my sister, but there was no relationship there. I was aware enough that we had each other on Facebook. So where was she living? Uh, yeah, she lived in the neighbouring town. I grew up in the neighbouring town to my mum, but never met her. Well, I'm confused. So you lived with your grandparents. Yeah. You had contact with your dad. Yeah. Constantly. Yeah. But But he was heroin addict. Yeah. Why were you not having contact with your mum? Because, uh, I mean, basically it was a custody thing. I think when I was young, my mum had serious mental health issues. So she wasn't capable of looking after a child. And therefore I went with my, my paternal family. Who were, you know, my grandparents were excellent. You know, okay, they, they had it. they had the money and the the stability to bring up a child in a way that my mum didn't. So your sister went to live with your mum. Yeah, okay. and so anyway, to get back to to when I met them. Yeah. So I've never met my mum uh, as far as my memory is concerned, and then uh, yeah, we we drive to Glasgow, and I'm really nervous, and we we pull up, and it's freezing cold. It's Boxing Day, and I'm walking. Uh, and it's icy on the pavement and I'm walking up and then uh, my sister knocks on the door and opens it and there are, there's a door immediately to the living room which my mum has stood behind so by opening the door it hides my mum but her sister whose house it is in Glasgow hugs my my sister uh, and is like hi Leanne how are you um, and then I walk in behind and so my mum because they've opened the door is behind the door but my auntie uh, she just looks at me and she goes Vic my mum being called Vicky. Uh, she goes, Vic, you won't believe this. And she, she's never met me. Uh, and then she walks around the door and just stares uh, because I'd turned up on Christmas, uh, age 23 or 22. And she hadn't seen you since age? Since, I know, like three. God, so 19 years. Uh, yeah. And I, I just turned up completely unannounced uh, and then gave her a hug and... All my other family from that part of the family were there because they were there for a reunion. They just didn't expect that reunion to include me. (laughs) Uh, And someone asked me when I wrote the story in The Guardian, they said, why didn't you tell her in advance? And, you know, my my mum had obviously not brought me up. Uh, And so, you know, in a sense, you failed as a mother if you don't bring your child up. I think that's fair to say. Uh, And she was a heroin addict for decades. So I didn't want to tell her that I was going to turn up and that we were going to meet because I didn't want her to overthink what she wanted to say. And it wasn't about apologising. It was about starting something, not about discussing things that had gone wrong. I also was worried because what if I chickened out and didn't actually turn up? Uh, So I didn't want to say I was going to do it in case I didn't because obviously it was quite nerve-wracking. What did Uh, you talk about? How how do you even start a conversation? You can't just go, did you see Coronation Street last night? What do you... How? <laughs> I mean, it's it was a lot of small talk um, and also wine. Uh, wine helps everything, yeah. Benjamin. But it was bizarre because I I meet my mum, I meet my auntie. Uh, I've got to know my sister on that drive. I meet my brother, my new brother. Uh, I meet my cousin. She's a lesbian. She has a girlfriend. Uh, she works in Whole Foods. I get a discount now. Uh, so there were so many people to meet that it was... I was going to say it's overwhelming. It actually wasn't overwhelming because it felt right. It's very odd to meet somebody and to meet people who are so similar to you in the subtlest, most fundamental ways that you've never met before. But even if I'd met them and been not been told who they were, I instinctively would have known. And I think that's a real human thing. And you look like your mum. 
uh, well yeah we had the same haircut when we met so i refused any photos for the day uh or refused because what haircut was that uh, worse than this one uh, yeah <laughs> this one ain't so bad it is uh you've seen the pictures <laughs> we always end with a quiz okay are you ready so it's all based around the name ben <laughs> okay i'm gonna read you a quote and you have to tell me which ben said it oh wow okay okay are any of them me no, that would be far too easy. <laughs> no, but I've said some ridiculous things. You should see my Twitter. Um, so here's the first one. If we can find the money to kill people, we can find the money to help people. Tony Ben. Is that his most famous quote? There were a couple, but it was definitely Tony Ben. You are correct. Uh, gong. I have no idea. Gong. Oh, Big Ben. Big Ben. Yes. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> Thank you. I like that. Um, Some people call me Big Ben. Wow. <laughs> All those people in Manchester. <laughs> exactly. And on the apps. If I ever woke up... What, Google Maps? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I ever woke up with a dead hooker in my room, Matt would be the first person I'd call. I don't know. Do you want me to read it again? I still won't know. Ben Affleck. Okay. I, re- I realised... Like, I, re- I, I figured out the link, but I just didn't know his name. Batman. Uh, what? It's Batman. He's playing Batman. Okay. Yeah. Great. If uh, hang on, um, I'm being torn apart. I want to be free of this pain. I know what I have to do, but I don't know if I have the strength to do it. Will you help me? Is that like some emo kid on Tumblr called Ben? It's funny you should say emo. Uh, because I think I think it had a big connection to emo. Yeah. I something's ringing a bell in my head. Were they in like a, a band? No. Okay, that's not ringing a bell. I don't know, but that does sound like something you'd read on Tumblr. Uh, it was Ben Solo, oh. also known as Kylo Ren. Okay. In the new Star Wars film. Uh, but also, I swear that's one of those things that's written in like handwriting on a graphic on Tumblr. More than likely. Uh, on a toilet door. Yeah. <laughs> um, our talented chefs have spent years developing products that bring the flavours of the world to your mealtime. Uncle Ben? Uncle Ben! Yay! <laughs> That's Who my favourite. a bit of Uncle Ben? Oh, I love rice. Thank you, Benjamin. Thank you for taking part in the photo shoot. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Did you enjoy yourself? I did. It was quite fun, actually. Good. <laughs> I like people to have fun when they come on the podcast. Um, so if you want to see the photos I took of Benjamin, head to sftl.photos. There's an S at the end. It's plural. Uh, this is how we end the podcast. I've been Robert Gershenson. I've been Benjamin Butterworth. And we'll shoot you later.